This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, doing something about the opioid epidemic that's claimed thousands of lives seemingly out of the blue. We don't realize these people, they can be very functional sometimes up until the point where they're so sick that they wind up overdosing and dying. Overcoming the stigma of drug abuse treatment when Radio Health Journal returns. Car crashes are a leading killer of children, but using proper restraint devices and seat belts can dramatically reduce the risks. Hi, I'm Debbie Herzman, president of the National Safety Council, and this is your Safety Minute. Car seats are essential to the safety of our kids, and they work, but only when used properly. Height and weight really determine the device you should use. Rear-facing car seats should be used for as long as possible, at least until your child turns two, and use a five-point restraint device until they reach the top height or weight limit. Children should ride in booster seats until a seatbelt fits properly, usually between 8 and 12 years old, and kids should always ride in the back seat through age 13. So make sure all passengers buckle up every time for a safe ride. Safety Minute is brought to you by the National Safety Council and Toyota. The opioid epidemic has reached into nearly every community in America. Surveys show that around a third of people know someone who's abused or been addicted to prescription painkillers. And not quite 20% of us know someone who's died of an overdose, a proportion that's likely to increase. Recently, the CDC said that in the past five years, there's been an increase in the death rate by 33% from opioid-related deaths. So that is a horrifying statistic that, you know, this is an increasing problem We don't seem to be getting a good handle on it. That's Dr. John Tanner, medical director of the Florida Intervention Project for Nurses and an addiction medicine specialist for more than 30 years. One in seven Americans, or nearly 21 million people, have some sort of addiction. We know that about 2.4 million people are addicted specifically to opiates, and 1.9 million of those are related to prescription opiates, and about a half million people and rising are addicted to heroin now. Addictions often start innocently with an injury or surgery and a patient in severe pain. Doctors may prescribe a painkiller such as Vicodin or Norco, trying to alleviate the pain. But they may have been doing it a little too freely and letting patients stay on those medications too long. Opioids are a medication that's been used for pain going back to the 1800s. And several years ago, the FDA, based on limited data, approved some of the current extended-release opioids. And physicians, uh, not just family physicians, but others, had a false sense of security that these were effective and safe to use. Dr. Alan Schwartzstein is a family practitioner in the Madison, Wisconsin area and vice speaker of the American Academy of Family Physicians. We've realized over the last several years, not just the Academy, but the national organizations, that perhaps these uh, medications are not appropriate used for chronic pain. Perhaps we should be using other medications, including non-opioids. Opioid painkillers are powerfully addictive. About 5% of people who use painkillers exactly as directed become addicted anyway within a year. Experts know who's most at risk. 
the people who are most vulnerable are people who have a family history of addiction. It could be alcohol or who they themselves use a substance like they may misuse alcohol or they may be a smoker and, and abusing the nicotine or even if they use marijuana, something like that. It kind of lays the groundwork for the brain to learn to escape and learn to deal with the everyday stresses in life. And then when they have an opiate, they discover that it's very potent, very powerful in relieving that. Some people feel that they have increased energy, so they very quickly can become addicted. The other thing that makes some people vulnerable to addiction is having had an experience of trauma sometimes in their life. This can be sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. They are more prone to learning to escape some of the pain of that by using substances like opiates. Addicts on prescription pain medications often don't look like what many people expect. It may be your neighbor or a co-worker. Tanner says for them, substance abuse is typically a progressive disease, starting slowly and becoming more and more severe. We don't realize these people, they can be very functional sometimes up until the point where they're so sick that they wind up overdosing and dying or having a severe global hypoxia or something like that to their brain and have severe brain damage. Many people can appear to be very functional and they keep this very secretive. Part of the problem is there's stigma associated with this and because of that stigma, many people don't seek help. They don't tell anyone about this disease that they suffer from. And it's tragic because they get sicker and sicker and try and cover the bases more and more until something tragic happens. The hidden nature of opioid addiction means that it often takes someone who knows a person to spot the trouble they're in or to have a chance they'll ask for help. That's why Schwartzstein and Tanner, along with many other experts, believe that primary care doctors, such as internists and family physicians, may be in a better position than addiction specialists to provide medical help. We provide ongoing, complete care for patients, and so we get to know them personally. We get to know their businesses, their families, who they are in the community, and so it makes it easier sometimes for us to recognize that possibility. We also have patients that come in and that say, Doctor, I'm just having trouble with these medications. I'm feeling like I have to use them, and I'd like some help so I don't have to use them all the time. You know, with all the stigma, many people are afraid to ask their doctor, and if the doctor just prompts and says, well, are there any issues with any drugs, be they illicit or non-illicit, that you feel have become a problem? And just asking that simple question can relieve a patient to know that they're free to talk about that. Until changes in legislation about 15 years ago, doctors pretty much had to refer patients with substance abuse problems to addiction treatment centers or 12-step programs. Many doctors still do, but now primary care doctors who've received special training have the means to treat drug addiction in their own offices. One key is the use of a drug called buprenorphine. It's a very unique molecule that has some very interesting properties. One of those properties is it's what we call a partial opioid agonist. That means that it binds to the receptors in the brain and it has some activity but only a mid-level, so to speak, activity. 
And because of that, it has a ceiling effect. The ceiling effect means that if somebody is on a stable, steady dose for several weeks, if they go ahead and, like most any good addict will try and do, they try and take extra. If they try and take extra, it has no additional effect. They can't get high on it. They cannot get euphoric. And it frees up the craving and desire to use opiates. So that now people function at a high level and they are able to learn to cope with things in healthier ways. So it, in a way, tricks the brain into thinking that it has that medication of addiction when it actually doesn't. Buprenorphine does not provide the type of high that medicines that fully connect to the opioid receptor would do. So it's easier for the patient to control their tendency to abuse a medication, and it also prevents them, importantly, from getting withdrawal symptoms. Some critics claim that treatment with buprenorphine simply substitutes one addiction for another, but Schwartzstein says that's not true. Not at all, no. Buprenorphine has such a small possibility for providing any kind of high that it is very much not something that addicts would go looking for. Often we'll start prescribing in the office with a combination of buprenorphine and a medicine called naloxone. That's the brand name Suboxone. And naloxone is a medication that if given will actually completely block the receptor. So if the person decided to use an opioid that they were addicted to, they would automatically go into withdrawal. Now those benefits don't mean that a doctor can simply prescribe buprenorphine and send the patient on his way. That's part of the reason doctors need training and why not every patient is successful. A patient has to be motivated for the treatment to control their addiction. If you don't have a motivated patient who's willing to follow through with doctor's instructions, who's willing to get counseling, who's willing to go to support groups and other therapies beyond the buprenorphine, the chances of success with it are much less. However, Schwartzstein says the chances of success at your family doctor's office may be much greater in the first place simply because patients are much more likely to seek help there. Patients are much more likely to follow through with their treatments if they can see me in the office and get treated rather than having go to an opioid addiction center. There are not enough of them around the country. Most of them are located in cities, and they're often an hour or two away from where the patient is. And yes, the stigma for all mental health issues has been gradually decreasing over the years that I've been in medicine, and patients are much more willing to come into the office to get treated for this than to go to one of those centers. But Tanner says stigma affects doctors, too. He says it's one reason so few primary care doctors are trained to use buprenorphine to treat addicted patients. Only about 3% of physicians actually do this. Again, I think part of this comes down to stigma. I, I have been a trainer of physicians for this way back before the medicine was even approved. Back in 2001, we started training trainers, and then we went out and trained people to prescribe this before it was actually even released. And there seems to be the stigma that physicians sometimes say, well, we don't want those kind of patients in our practice, and they don't realize that they're treating multiple people that are too afraid to approach them about their problem. So that's part of the problem. Fortunately, I think there's more and more interest among physicians in addiction medicine now. Schwartzstein says the American Academy of Family Physicians has trained more than 10,000 doctors to use buprenorphine and is encouraging its members to get on board. But Tanner says some 12-step programs balk at its inclusion. 
It can create conflict in 12-step programs when some members are using a medication to recover and others are not. Many of the treatment programs are opposed to this type of medication. Sadly, that flies in the face of what research shows. And I know in my local area, I have witnessed many times over the years where people go through treatment, they get detoxed, they may even have some good rehab that addresses all the psychosocial aspects. But because people are discharged without a medicine that can help get them on track, especially when they're early in recovery and vulnerable. These people go out, they quickly relapse and they overdose and die or wind up long-term incarcerated. A couple of years ago, the federal government started a push to double the number of doctors who can prescribe buprenorphine and treat substance abuse from their offices. Schwartzstein says the results can be extremely successful. We very much want the public to see opioid addiction and other mental health problems in the same continuum they see other physical problems with people. People think of diabetes and high blood pressure as being a chronic disease that needs to be treated for their life. And some patients are very good about taking their medications, about controlling their diet, about having activity, and those people often get good control of their blood pressure or their diabetes. Opioid addiction really is no different. A person needs to follow through with the treatment recommendations, needs to take the medications that are necessary, needs to follow through with the lifestyle changes. There's a study that shows that motivated patients who have addictions can be as successfully treated as those with diabetes or hypertension. So we're really talking about a, an illness the same as any other chronic illness. However, Tanner notes that we need to pay attention to history and the fact that addiction doesn't go away, just the substances that we're worried about. Just a few years ago, the concern was all about meth. He fears that once we turn the corner on opiates and start prescribing and treating addiction to them more rationally, then we'll forget our due diligence on some other classes of drugs, maybe stimulants, and we'll start all over again. You can find physicians in your area qualified to treat addiction medically through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They're online at samhsa.gov. You can find out more about all of our guests through our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. I'm Reed Pence. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. As we age, changes in vision can be much more serious than a need for stronger glasses. Without treatment, diseases like cataracts, glaucoma, or age-related macular degeneration can lead to blindness. But many seniors haven't had an eye exam in some time. Ophthalmologist Dr. John Burdall says Eye Care America can help. The American Academy of Ophthalmology's Eye Care America program is designed for medically underserved seniors who haven't been to an ophthalmologist in three or more years. Eligible patients are matched with a nearby volunteer ophthalmologist for a comprehensive medical eye exam and up to one year of care for any disease diagnosed during the initial visit, often at no cost. Launched in 1985, Eye Care America is one of the largest public service programs in American medicine. Find out if you, your friends, or family members are eligible. Visit aao.org slash eyecareamerica. That's aao.org slash eyecareamerica. Medical Notes This Week 
Women who have suffered a miscarriage and are trying to get pregnant again might want to think about taking a daily baby aspirin. A study in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism tested women who had lost a previous pregnancy and scored high for inflammation in the body. Researchers found that those who took a daily dose aspirin were 31% more likely to become pregnant than women who took a placebo and 35% more likely to carry the baby to term. However, researchers say it's too early to recommend aspirin to prevent pregnancy loss. Statistics show that obese girls don't do as well in school as their thinner counterparts, but a new study in the journal Sociology of Education finds that at least part of the difference may be due to discrimination on the part of their teachers. Researchers say even when they score the same on ability tests, obese white girls receive worse grades than their thinner peers. And finally, here's one more thing to put on the list of things to never eat. Snow. It doesn't matter what color the snow is. A study in the journal Environmental Science, Processes and Impacts finds that snow is remarkably efficient at absorbing particulate air pollution that you find in car exhaust. It's like a sponge, so catching snowflakes with your tongue may not be as pure as we thought. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.